Richardson. Stopped by Platt. Here's Steve Bold. And it's Adams. Put through by Bold. Would you believe it? That sums it all up. Season's greetings all and welcome back to That Sums It All Up. It's Arsenal Manchester United this evening, Thursday. Huge game for both sides, perhaps surprisingly, who are currently vying for similar things in the league. As we embark upon the Premier League's festive footballing feast, it's time to welcome back Mr Alfie Young, who hasn't been on the podcast for a while. We're going to have a general catch-up before we get into rounding up the Premier League fixtures from the midweek games, and then we're going to get into a lovely discussion about Manchester United, all that's been going on at Old Trafford before previewing the big game at Old Trafford this evening. So, welcome back to the podcast, Alfie. How are we? Very well. It's a pleasure to be back. For a while there, I thought I might not get asked back. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny, I, I uh, just as I was sort of going through, thinking about what we're going to talk about today, I went through the, um, the sort of show notes from the previous two podcasts that we did. I mean, we did three last year, but we did two um, after each Arsenal United fixture. So we didn't do a preview podcast, but it was interesting to see what we were talking about after each games. And we'll get onto that a bit later. But um, yeah, of course, I think it was... Uh, it's definitely overdue to have a little catch up about things that are going on Manchester United and Arsenal wise because there has been a hell of a lot going on. Um, I bet it's very different content to the ones we recorded previously. It seems to seems to change by the week with these two clubs, whether whether one's in the successful phase or not. Or, uh... Yeah, indeed. And um, Look, let's just before we get into talking about United. Um, obviously, there were some some Premier League games over the last couple of days. Um, let's just think about. I don't know if you managed to catch any of the games, but there were some standout results. Liverpool absolutely blitzed Everton in the Merseyside derby, one four one. Salah's couple of goals were out of this world. Jota scored an absolute cracker as well. Um, Robertson got a couple of assists. Jordan Henderson scored an amazing goal. Um, he played excellently as well. So honestly, Liverpool were, I watched the game, they were outstanding, as they have been recently, to be honest. Klopp maintains his unbeaten run at Goodenson Park, I believe. Goodenson Park? Gooden, Goodenson Park? Goodenson. <laughs> Goodenson Park. I don't think he's lost there as a manager, as a Liverpool manager. Probably not. I think the only time that uh, Everton have beaten Liverpool over the last, however long it's been, was last season at Anfield when they won 2-0, which was unprecedented. Uh, I think that's when Liverpool were sort of in a in a tough patch. But yeah, I, if you haven't caught those highlights, I'd definitely recommend getting on them because Liverpool were exceptional and the goals were out of this world. Like Salah's finishing and his composure and just the class of Jota and Henderson. And I mean, honestly, I, I think people were this season seeing Chelsea win the Champions League and sort of the players they'd brought in, Lukaku as well, and the Man City's quality too sort of wrote off Liverpool a bit just in terms of like vying for the for the title. But I mean, the quality with which they have been playing this season, the goals they're scoring. I mean, Salah's undoubtedly the best player in the world, I think, at the moment. And I think they're going to be well... In, it is a three-horse race, but I don't think Liverpool should be written off at all given the way that they're playing. I still think they are, you know, the most devastating team when on song. And they have been on song a lot recently. They're absolutely relentless, and uh, I think a lot. Of, word. 
a lot of people sort of got a bit blinded by that that weird year they had last year that just a lot of things seemed to go against them and they really struggled for form a lot of the time but it was only the year before that that they were they were sort of you know setting records alongside city as one of the best best sort of attacking outfits that have ever won the league so no doubt they'll be right up and around doing that again yeah i mean we sort of forget don't we that last season I mean, they were blighted by such big injuries. You know, Van Dyke was out for the season. Um, I think Allison was out for a fair bit. They had plenty of injuries to contend with. And it did, you know, sort of contribute to all this downturn in form. They didn't necessarily have the squad depth. It looked as if they were quite knackered just after the two years prior to that, where, as you said, they were arguably the best team in, in the world. They won the Premier League at a sort of record pace, um, they won the Champions League. They were blitzing away everyone who came to Anfield. And we forget last year as well, they had a sort of underwhelming season for good reason. And they still finished third. And this season, they've got all their sort of players back. They've strengthened the squad. Salah's hit a new level. Jota is sort of really uh, coming to terms with playing for Liverpool. And he, he looks unbelievable. It's crazy to think he's still something like 23, 24. Um and so they are in a well and truly sort of strong position. And these players have been together for about five years now or longer uh, with Klopp. I mean, Klopp's coming up to almost 10 years in, in charge at Liverpool, which is crazy. I mean, give it another couple of years when his contract runs out. He would have been there for almost 10 years, which is crazy. But it's sort of a testament to how good they are as a side. Like this team developed from like a young team. Um, and now they're sort of, I mean, maybe even getting to, towards being past their prime, but it's it's a joy to watch, I think, just seeing them play and the intensity with which they play. Um, I really enjoyed watching the game yesterday, but Manchester City also got a win. Uh, they they won 2-1 at Villa Park. Um, Ollie Watkins got the goal for Villa. Of course he did. And of course he was on my uh, fantasy draft as well. Relentless. <laughs> <laughs> um, Manchester City got a couple of goals um, Bernardo Silva scored an absolute screamer again if you haven't watched it I definitely recommend it um, Steven Gerrard's first loss I think from Aston Villa but I think it was sort of inevitable I think Manchester City scored another excellent goal as well oh, it was Ruben Diaz who got the goal I haven't watched it but apparently it was a 20 yard screamer um, in other news Chelsea got a 2-1 win away at Watford. Um, I think it was harder work than perhaps we thought it might be. Reese James was out of the squad completely, so I think they struggled a bit there. Lukaku just getting back to full fitness. Um, didn't start, but came on. Leicester got a 2-2 draw at Southampton. James Madison among the goals again. Um, so it looks as if he's picking up. West Ham dropped points. Um, Brighton got a late goal. Neil Mopé with an overhead kick, apparently. Um, So West Ham are sort of falling off. I mean, we'll get onto it in an Arsenal context, but a win tonight for Arsenal would see them leapfrog West Ham into the top four, which is crazy. And then yesterday, uh, Leeds got a late, late winner against Crystal Palace, uh, a Rafinha penalty, and Newcastle drew 1-1 to Norwich in a bottom-of-the-table clash. So it's been quite a lot going on. Um, And obviously, we've got United-Arsenal today, and then Spurs are hosting Brentford. So... Plenty to sort of uh, think about. I mean, and the and the fixtures keep coming thick and fast. But let's get on to Manchester United. 
where would you like to start? I mean, let's start with the fact that you've lost a hundred pounds. Um, how are you feeling about that? And, and give, <laughs> yes, the listeners, I think I've, give the listeners some context for that. I've, I've, I've got a, a sort of a deeper connection than most of this Solskjaer sacking. You know, many United fans will claim to be devastated for various reasons. Will they? they I, I'm directly affected by these affairs. A <laughs> hundred pounds in the red now because... <laughs> Because Julian Plen and I had a bet as to who would last longer, Solskjaer or Arteta. Mm. And it, it, it seemed like a good bet at the time, but it's been a tumultuous journey over the past, sort of, I think it was two or so years we made this bet. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been a great bet, though, because I remember when you put the bet on, I remember being pretty certain as an, a biased Arsenal fan. I was like, he's going to outlast Solskjaer. And I remember you being quite certain that there's definitely scope for Solskjaer to last longer than Arteta. And it's definitely fluctuated. You know, when we spoke around this time last year um, and Solskjaer, you know, he'd lost 6-1 at home to Spurs. Arsenal had gone to Old Trafford and won. They had a poor start to the season. And it looks as if it was a shoo-in that Arteta would last longer. Then Arteta had this terrible run with Arsenal. It looks as if he might get sacked. Then the beginning of this season as well, it sort of fluctuated and, you know, there's been all sorts of ups and downs. But finally, uh, Solskjaer went. And so you're, you're £100 down. Um, so I think, yeah, you, you're, you're emotionally invested in this, uh, this managerial turnaround a bit more than most. But I think it's interesting to point out that, you know, you mentioned that Manchester United fans might be devastated. I think a lot of them will probably be relieved. I mean, I don't know if you saw the... Um, Solskjaer's video that he released on like the official website I don't know if you watched it but I just wanted to ask you first maybe what what your response was to that because I found it quite touching even though you know I'm not a United fan but you could really see that you know without a doubt he cares so much about the club and it was hard to see him sort of almost break down like that in front of the cameras um, because I mean let's be honest he wasn't really cut out long term to do the job that he was doing and he didn't get the support um or the uh the guidance i think that he needed no and it was a quite a sort of stark reminder in this sort of brutal world of of winning and mm-hmm. you know success at all costs type of type of world that you know these people are humans and ole is a fan before anything else really Bef- even before he's a legend and a player and even before he was a manager, he's you know, he's a man who loves the club, which uh, you might argue doesn't really doesn't really matter because it didn't help him succeed. So fair enough. Um, he obviously had to go. I don't think anyone was arguing that. You know, it's really sad that he had to leave, and you shouldn't sack him because it's too mean. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it was nice. I think for a lot of United fans for a while to have someone like that in charge again, rather than. Someone like Mourinho, Van Gaal even didn't really feel like they had the club's best interests at heart. It was mm. probably more about their success than the club's success mm. at any given point. It was it was a nice feeling having someone you really, really trusted with the intentions, if not the execution of his mm. of his tenure. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting point because I think everyone is probably in agreement that he was left in the job for far too long. It should have been sort of ties severed before. Um, I mean, I think to after the Europa League final loss, I think from there, you know, we saw it in a way, it's not the same, but with Unai Emery, um, 
he lost the Europa League final and then he was backed that summer after, but in a sort of way that he was backed, but not, you know, he didn't get the players he wanted. I mean, it's hard to think that, I'm sure Solskjaer would have wanted to sign these players, but they don't, I'm not sure how much he would have had a say in these signings. Like they're very much, um, I don't know, like club signings, like Ronaldo, would Solskjaer have at the beginning of the summer been like, right, I want to sign Cristiano Ronaldo. Like, of course he would have taken it by the end of it. But I think after a loss like that in the Europa League final and then to award him a three-year contract, I think that was probably the final sort of nail in the coffin in terms of you're not going to get any further than that. But I'll come back to sort of what you might make of that. Just wanted to say that um, he he did do a good job initially, I think. It was necessary to have that guy who's got that Manchester Unitedness post Mourinho. You know, he did bring back that that fun nature you were competing in the big games you, you finished second and third in the league in in his first sort of two full seasons in charge I think so he did do a decent job he got to a few cup finals but you know he didn't quite have enough to compete when you know the stakes were really high against the likes of Guardiola or whoever it might be in the final I mean he actually had a great record against Guardiola but you know what I mean sort of longevity wise and um but I think also that only gets you so far. And I think if United were a well-run club, which they're not, and maybe that will change now and we'll get onto that, he would have sort of, they would have noticed that he'd done his job. He'd brought back, he'd stabilised the sort of atmosphere and brought the fans and the and the players and the whole dynamic of the club back to a healthy point post-Mourinho, post-Van Gaal, sort of post-Ferguson, really. And then gone in a new direction because I think you United now need to sort of try and move away really from rediscovering this post like the Ferguson United of old and you know the Manchester Unitedness you need to start re-identifying as a as a as a new sort of team in my opinion and I think Ralph Ranić is a is a smart appointment in that sense but I don't know what you made of any of that um just in terms of you know Solskjaer's um, sort of being left hang out, hang out to dry and whether you think there's a moment that he should have gone and how you feel the board are responsible for this, all these sort of questions. Yes, it was a shame to see it go the way it did, uh, that it should never have been allowed to go on that long. And I think a lot of United fans will agree with me in sort of the thinking that it's you don't even really blame Solskjaer at that point because you know his limitations and you know you've known maybe for a while if you're watching the sort of you know underlying sustainability of things that it's he obviously isn't the guy to take us sort of all the way forward but it's just a shame to see the board letting things go on so long and not having not having a sort of succession plan in place at all i mean it's one of those things i used to always sort of it used to confuse me so much when Boards would sack a manager after a win. For instance, I think it's Norwich just got their first win of the season under Daniel Fark, and he was sacked the day after. Or Watford did a similar thing with Zizou mm. Munez. And you naively sort of think, what a ridiculous decision. If they just sort of found some form, they just, you know, what if they were just about to go on a run? What if? This is a board who have been clear that this is a long-term plan. They've been looking at the underlying numbers. They've been looking at the sustainability of the project. And one win wasn't enough to change it. It took us losing 4-1 at Watford in order to get sacked. And there's still a big part of me that thinks if we'd won that game, he might still be at the club. Mm. There was no long-termism in this decision 
whatsoever. This board was waiting for the actual last possible moment to, you know, make that decision. They were forced into it in some ways. Their hand was forced by results, by sort of the, the fan and dressing room uh, happiness at that point. You know, it's, it's just testament to how how little forethought has gone into sort of, you know, a succession plan or a sort of any sort of, you know, any sort of plan. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think I, I drew I drew on the Unai Emery conversation just because I think, you know, Arsenal and United are very different clubs and in different positions financially and, you know, culturally as well. And Arsenal have embarked upon this new sort of project, which I think United's probably could do with sort of starting to do, not in the same vein because, you know, you've got all these huge players, but it was the same with Arsenal in the sense that Unai Emery was literally sort of hung out to dry in a sense that he should have gone about a month or two before he actually did. And it was a testament to the board's inability to sort of be proactive and, and show that, you know, they're a, well, they're, a, they're a board that can run the club well, whether it's the board or the technical director or the chief executives or the owners, you know, it all sort of filters down. And when you have owners like Arsenal and Manchester United do, who are, you know, based in the US and care primarily, I mean, arguably about, in the Glazers' case, sort of about the money. And, you know, there's quotes about, from I think Ed Woodward even, or, or Joel Glazer maybe about, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter how Manchester United perform, as long as you're sort of ticking over and, you know, in and around the top positions, you're going to be making loads of money or they're going to be making loads of money. And I think, you know, the Cronky family at Arsenal have sort of been doing the same thing. But I think the comparison that you drew with Watford and uh, Norwich in the sense that, you know, they won a game under a manager who was under fire and then sacked it. I mean, it shows the sort of, you know, they're, they're really sort of forced into being proactive and taking initiative because of their position at the bottom of the league. But, you know, because Arsenal and Manchester United are like, well, we're not really going to get relegated. You know, we can afford to just leave it a bit longer and hopefully it will just turn around and we don't have to intervene and make drastic changes and pay off all the staff and, you know, pay loads of money to this new manager. I mean, that is the difference. And I think, look, hopefully, I mean, I say hopefully for, you know, the Manchester United fan and the club um, and hopefully not from an Arsenal point of view, it looks as if United are maybe starting to realise that they have to be run in a smarter way. But how is that possible with an ownership model that, I mean, it's the Glazers. I mean, I don't know what you make of it because I don't know too much about, I know that United fans absolutely detest the Glazers, but how far can this go when you've got owners like that? I think proactive is the operative word that you use there. And to be fair, it's not always clubs like Norwich and Watford that we're that we're looking to for proactivity and you know well well run boards and that kind of thing. But the United board is, has just been so reactive in recent mm-hmm. times to the way things are going. And I said it's about you know the way Ollie was sacked. They're not paying attention to to you know the sort of the the underlying sustainability. They are paying attention to the surface level results. They are, you know, reacting to games and to things they see rather than making plans for the long term and basing their decisions off of, you know, off of genuine sort of reliable decision-making processes. And uh, it's just, you're never really going to get success like that. That doesn't seem to be the case with this appointment, which is what is quite interesting and quite exciting, I think, for a lot of United fans. We're in the, we're in the rather 
un, unprecedented position of feeling like you know our board has taken taken the right plan of action for once we remains to be seen but mm. no I, I agree I think it is an exciting time we'll get on to Ralph Rannick's appointment I think just finally closing that conversation you know I recall Leicester um a year after they'd won the title under Ranieri you know they were sort of lingering towards the bottom of the table and with that risk of sort of you know, oh, we're, we might get relegated. I know that's more of a drastic threat than say, oh, we're not going to qualify mm. for the Champions League, but it's sort of relative. You know, they cut ties. I know emotions. They were like, and Leicester, we all know, are a very well-run club. They said, look, Ranieri, you've got to go. They brought in, I think, uh, I think it was Craig Shakespeare, maybe just on an interim period and results picked up. They started doing a bit better. And it just shows like sometimes it's necessary to, to sort of cut ties and, Look, well, let, let's move on um, to start talking about Ralph Raniak and and sort of the uh, the positivity. I mean, let's just mention Michael Carrick first. Um, what have you made of his his little stint interim period? I mean, he's beaten beat Villarreal. I think it was a good result. I think I think you struggled in the first half of that game. I can't quite remember, but you know, you got a, a good result in the end. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo at it again in the Champions League, um, and then you got a draw at Chelsea again. Maybe a bit lucky, but. You know, he's, he'll be in charge for the Arsenal game tonight. He'll be able to look back on this little period probably quite proudly, do you think? Yeah, I love how he, look, how he looks on the touchline as well. I think he's a really <laughs> suave, suave looking guy. Um, so I'm excited to see more of that. No, but uh, he's, he's got a couple of results, which is really important. The performances haven't been particularly expi- um, inspiring, which is no surprise given I think a lot of people have suggested the problems in the first place was the coaching staff rather than necessarily even the manager. Mm. People like Kieran McKenna and Michael Carrick are being hurled under the bus at the moment. Mm. Um, but he's getting results and it's a really important period to do that in because these interim periods between managers, it's just a chance for things to get worse and worse. Results start slipping, points start slipping. Maybe Champions League qualification looks less likely. Mm. You know, getting a draw to Chelsea at the bridge. Yeah, at the bridge, wasn't it? Yeah, um, you know, just important important results to get. Whether the performances are, you know, the only thing I was particularly bothered about, you know, I've been watching these games, not particularly excited to see anything anything different happen because I know Carrick's not going to be there for the long term. Although I will say that I saw a report on Twitter that just completely backs up the point I was making about how ridiculous this board's decision-making is that suggested that if results went Carrick's way, they might look into taking him on as an interim for the rest of the season. And then this is the implication being if results went his way throughout the season, maybe they'd look to <laughs> sign him on in an Ole-esque permanent contract. And I just thought, oh my God, it's telling that the report was that if results went his way, not if performances went his way, yeah. not if things looked really good under character, but if he got a few lucky results, I don't know, maybe we'd, maybe we'd offer him a contract. So no, that won't happen now. Thankfully, Ranik appointment's been made. Yeah. But uh no, I've I've been happy to see him steady the ship relatively well under under pretty trying circumstances. Oh yeah, massively. And I think I mean, were you worried at any point that I mean there was a slight possibility? Could you have seen it going in the way that you saw on Twitter? Like he gets a few results and then they haven't made their decision and then oh, they're gonna maybe give him the interim job on a until the end of the season, like I thought that he could be in charge maybe until like Christmas or something, just because I didn't think that United would get that act together. Um, and then if he managed to get a few results, then maybe they'd just keep him on. But do you think that 
I mean, if we're really being honest, and I know, you know, we're looking at it from hindsight, uh, it was never going to happen just because of the way in which it was too similar to Solskjaer and it just wouldn't have been accepted by United fans or the players. I think you're absolutely overestimating the competence of the board. I think we're very <laughs> lucky that that Ranić is clearly someone who was very passionate about the United job and really sort of was intent on getting this job and making it his. I think we're lucky that he was so interested because if not, we'd probably have to wait for Pochettino to become available or someone like that, which might not have happened mid-season. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been character till the end of the season, but I, if, like I say, if, if results had gone his way for four or five games, I don't think they'd hesitate to to keep him on. Mm, yeah, interesting. Well, look, let's get on to it. And I think Michael Carrick does deserve some credit. I'm, I'm not sure if we if we know whether he's going to stay stay on under the Ragnik setup. He is going to stay on. I mean, I think the suggestion I, is the coaching staff are going to be coached by Ragnik. Well, exactly. And I think that's another thing that I just wanted to mention is that, isn't it interesting, look, that, you know, the Solskjaer very much adopted a, I don't want to keep going back to it, but a Ferguson managerial role where, you know, he wouldn't really take, he wouldn't run the training sessions. He'd be the manager. And Michael Carrick and Kieran McKenna were doing the sort of training. And then, you know, you could see on the pitch that, you know, the players weren't well drilled. I mean, the defensive side of the game went out the window at the at the beginning of this season um there was no sort of coherent uh, attacking strategy and i think you could say that about the entirety of Solskjaer's reign i know that you've you've had games where you score a lot of goals and you do look really good on the counter attack but like you know in terms of like having a an attacking structure it's been very much based around individuals and maybe that's being harsh i'm not sure what you think but why is it that then the Look, you struggled in the Chelsea game and the United game, but under Solskjaer, you get you probably lose those games big time. And if they're being coached by the same guys who are also part of the problem, I mean, surely a lot of it's got to do with the fact that you know the players had lost confidence in Solskjaer, um, and I think that's obvious. But yeah, it just shows that there is a difference to be made, even though you know Sol- uh, Car- Carrick and McKenna have been have been blamed necessarily have been blamed for these uh this sort of downturn of performance because they can't coach properly but now in the last few games the results have picked up a bit yeah i think it shows how how a game of such fine margins football is and how high variance is involved in these things and the goal we scored against chelsea was was i mean you could argue it was uh it was caused by a really well executed high press. <laughs> I would say it's just a you know an unforced error from Jorginho. Admittedly, we only conceded from what was a relatively soft penalty as well. But you know, mentality accounts for a lot, but so does variance. Um, you know, new manager bounce and that, even if it is an interim. Does uh, I don't think anyone anyone watching those performances would seriously argue that anything looks drastically better than it did before. It's just a, perhaps a bit, a little, a couple of minor tweaks and a bit more conviction. Yeah. And like, you know, it's a big change when a manager goes and, you know, it's probably a, a relief and a sigh of relief when the pressure's not off, but, you know, like there you can look to the future and these players aren't under perhaps as intense scrutiny as they would have been if Solskjaer was still there under those games. But look, let's get on to the Ranik appointment. We mentioned that it's exciting for United fans. 
he's been appointed as interim manager until the end of the season. And then he's got a two year consultancy role, um, which I think will be great for United. Uh, I don't know if you saw Gary Neville's quotes. I mean, it's funny. He's going to be the manager, but he's going to be coaching the coaching staff on how to coach. But then he's also going to be coaching the club afterwards uh, for two years is what Gary Neville said. Um, he was apparently it was John Murto. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The new, the recently appointed football director who was the guy who really sort of sought, uh, sought Ranjek's appointment out. And, you know, he's very much tied in with this appointment because I think he's, once Ed Woodward steps down, I think he's moving into that executive role perhaps. And he doesn't have that footballing experience, but he's, he's showing that maybe he wants to learn from Ranjek. So what are we thinking about Ranjek's appointment? Because he's a manager for the next six months, but then, you know, he's, is he going to be in charge of finding a new manager? Like what's his role going to be? Like, how do you see this playing out? Yes, it's interesting as to how heavily involved he will be in those sorts of things, whether his views will align with the the views that have been established at the club already. We were already interested in people like Pochettino and Ten Hag before you know, any input Ranić might have had. Mm. Um, so whether he will be changing those things or whether he will be uh, furthering those views, I don't know. Um, Murtoff madness, they're calling it. Getting Randy, and apparently one of his big roles was sort of getting himself about Europe and sort of getting getting chummy with some of the bigger names and really sort of you know becoming a point of contact, which mm. he's clearly done quite usefully. Ed Woodward is this is this his passing gift? Mm. Is he going to leave a legacy that will that will slightly sort of you know silver line his somewhat disappointing tenure? Mm. I don't know. Uh, I think a lot of people are more excited about the consultancy than the, the sort of six month mm. uh, thereabouts management period where, you know, frankly, turning around, turning this team around into title winners is 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 not within anyone's realistic expectations. I think there's a chance we could win something, but I think the real excitement is that he's going to sort of, you know, drag this club kicking and screaming into the into the sort of modern tactical era. And really yeah. sort of give us a bit of that, like you're saying, a bit of that tactical identity that we were lacking under Solskjaer. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much power he has in that consultancy role, whether he's whether he's got sort of a power of veto over certain things, whether whether things whether all goes through him or whether he's literally just a sort of more advising on the culture and making sure things are staying within certain limits. I don't know. It will be yeah. very interesting. I think that is the interesting part of it. How much influence is he going to be given? Because, you know, we know he's going to have a big impact, hopefully, on the tactical side of things. And and sort of, you know, if you establish something at a higher level in the club, then it filters down level by level. And then you see it on the pitch. And I think that's where we've seen Manchester United go wrong is that, you know, you can see what goes on on the pitch and you've got all these star players and, but there's no really identity. And then you can trace that back up. And I think he will do a good job on that. And I think he'll be allowed to do that. But what also he'll probably want to do is, you know, change the infrastructure of the club, whether he'll be able to do that because, you know, obviously uh, Edward Woods going to be stepping down. I think at some point, it just seems like he's never going to leave at this point. Um, and then you've still got Matt Judge and Richard Arnold and John Murtough who, 
apparently all of these guys have known each other for a long time. You know, I think they were all at university together, whether they knew each other well or not. You know, they've all got financial backgrounds related to the Glazers. Um, it all seems a bit cosy at boardroom level with Manchester United. It's all sort of, as you were saying, sort of chummy, internal kind of, where's the... Um, yeah, maybe Ranić will bring this external, I mean, this necessary external influence. But I think it will be fascinating to see whether United are willing to give him that uh, autonomy. Because as we know, Ralph Ranić has, has been credited the way he's not really known as a manager. You know, he's had some really successful stints in, you know, Germany with, uh, you know, Hoffenheim and Schalke and RB Leipzig. But, you know, what he's known as is redefining sort of a a club from an executive point of view that then filters down onto the pitch. And, you know, you start changing the profile of players that you're signing, you change the identity of the team. Will, will he be given that license? Because we know that United are sort of, they don't like, I mean, part of the reason that they didn't want to bring in Antonio Conte was the fact that he would make too many demands. Um, you know, and, and it might go pear-shaped when they're saying like, look, we don't want to do this. We want to just, you know, keep things ticking over nicely and having a manager who's not going to intervene too much. I think that's why also part of the reason that they kept Solskjaer on for so long. Solskjaer's a fan at the end of the day. He's not going to kick and scream if something does, doesn't go his way like Mourinho or Conte. And I think it will be interesting to think about how much Ranić, yeah, like where he stands in that extent. Is he a sort of middle ground between Solskjaer and you say Mourinho and Conte, for example, we're probably a, you know, no club really will want to deal with them when they're unhappy. Um, as we've seen, it can go really wrong. But I think this will be a really interesting sort of uh, representation of how Manchester United are going to develop as a club. And I mean, it's da they're damned if they don't really, because they've got this guy who's probably the most sought after sort of figure in European football, just in terms of the influence that he's had. And, you know, he's credited with sort of laying the foundations for Jurgen Klopp and Thomas Tuchel and uh, uh, Julian Lagelsmann and his style of pressing and bringing young players through. It's like, he is the guy in European football. Every club sort of would like to have him running their club. And so will Manchester United's very essence as a club, as it stands, get in the way of that? I mean, United fans, for you, I hope not. And it looks as if maybe they're willing to sort of start giving a bit more autonomy to people who aren't so necessarily involved in the club. And I think that's necessary. But there must be that worry of just, well, this is such a big opportunity. You've really got to make the most of it. And you, you hope that the club don't sort of hamstring themselves into, into not, you know, really jumping at the chance to move away from this post-Ferguson era where, you know, you've, you've struggled and for good reason. I mean, for good reason, I say like you've spent a lot of money and it's not gone well, but this is a big turning point, I think, in terms of the way, the trajectory of Manchester United. Yes, one can only hope that the, the board really are willing to sort of commit and take that deep dive because it looks like they have done, they have sort of relinquished a bit of control with this decision and said, look, fine, I'm going to pull my finger out, I, you know. We're, we're not we're not necessarily the guys who are making all the decisions anymore and they've realised we need some more football in the decision making processes which is exactly what Ranjit will be he'll be a person high up in the pecking order 
with footballing blood. All he thinks about is actual on the pitch, you know, tactical ideas. He's not concerned with too much. I don't think with finances. Obviously, he'll have he'll have good experience in all these areas, but he's not he's not sort of bothered about various other details of running the club. He is a football man. Hopefully, there will be they will be sort of you know confident in in yeah giving him a bit more a bit more power and uh and they'll really commit to the decision otherwise otherwise it will sort of be a bit of a halfway house where they seem to have gotten the right guy in to do that but maybe not giving him the power to do it he'll maybe get frustrated they'll make some more bad decisions make some good money off it though and we'll be back where we started let's hope let's hope not yeah i think we can i mean united fans can take uh can be encouraged by the fact that John Murtoff is the guy sort of who really pushed for this, I think. And I think given that the sort of power vacuum that maybe Ed Woodward is going to leave would, would have gone to him entirely, I think is the way that it would have gone down. And he's actually in a way sort of delegated this to, well, I'm going to be sort of maybe at an executive level in control, but I'm going to get someone who actually knows what he's doing in. Um, And I think that is a testament to a good decision made um do you have any concern about the fact that you know i know it's only in an interim uh period i've got two questions one do you think that if this interim period goes incredibly well is there any chance of him staying on two do you think that someone like eric ten Hag's appointment now is maybe more likely than say maurizio pochettino just because of the way in which maybe ten Hag aligns more with i don't know ten um Ranić for some reason. I'm not really sure in my head why that is, but I think maybe because Pochettino is such a big presence and very much likes to be in control, maybe Ten Hag's going to fit into this structure a bit more. And three, sorry, a third one. <laughs> um, is there any worry about his sort of lack of managerial experience at club where you've got the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo and, you know, these big personalities, Bruno Fernandes, because he's done it. He's made his name a lot mainly because of his, uh, you know, sort of higher up role in football clubs. I mean, I know he's done really well at Leipzig and Schalke and stuff, but that's not Manchester United. Uh, do you have any concern that he he's sort of, yeah, he won't be the sort of manage interim appointment um, that maybe his quality as a consultant or part of the board will, will be if you catch my drift? Yes, I do. I think it's a very interesting and unique appointment. I think Ranić's a very interesting and unique figure within mm-hmm. the football. Doesn't really seem to be anyone with his type of stature. Where you're not the Pep Guardiola or the Jose Mourinho of management. No one really looks at him as a managing guru necessarily. As you said, the only places he's managed are sort of Leipzig, Salzburg, good teams in the upper echelons of of the overall footballing sphere but you know these aren't Manchester United's you're correct um but and he also seems to be put on this pedestal sort of worshipped by mm. the very managers I've just listed as their kind of forefathers mm. um for various reasons you know he has a lot to do a lot of sort of tactical innovations is he necessarily going to be the guy to get those across in the dressing room how's his man management I'm not sure we know that too well mm these sorts of things there are lots of question marks that remain over over his appointment um which is why i think as i said earlier that it's probably a lot more exciting the consultancy role than the, the interim management because it is an interim job as well mm. and 
you know, I think a lot of people sort of aren't too worried about whether that goes amazingly successfully or not. I think we're really just really happy to have him as a, a figurehead in our club, um, influencing the culture rather than being the man directly responsible for results. Mm. As to whether or not you think your first question was whether he might stay on um, longer than six months. I have no idea other than I saw, I think it was Julian Nagelsmann talking about his appointment saying, oh, it's great. Great to see him do this. And he said something like, you know, I've spoken to him about it and I hope that he stays on longer. And you, you'd think mm. Nagelsmann wouldn't be publicly stating that he hopes he stays on longer unless he maybe knew that that was a possibility. Mm. He's probably spoken to Rangnick about it and Rangnick may have mentioned that, you know, if things go well, both for him and for the club, you know, let's say he does win us a Champions League or something in the season, as unlikely as that may seem at this point, mm. you know, maybe maybe the club would be happy to keep him on. Maybe he'd be happy to stay on. I mm. couldn't say for certain either way. But there seemed to be an implication in what Nagelsmann said that, that Randy would be interested in mm. keeping the full-time job, if that was possible. As for his influence on what manager we sign I presume it'll be pretty large given he'll he'll be moving to that consultancy role I presume he'll have quite a heavy hand in, in sort of just those discussions I would like if it did mean Ten Hag rather than Pochettino I don't really know why mm. but I feel like Ten Hag really does seem like a good match for Renick and a good sort of forward thinking manager someone who's yet to hit their prime yet to sort of do it at the top level but looks like they're capable of it mm. Um, so it'd be nice to see that happening. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm not sure, like I say, whether his his views on the manager because the, the club will have had the club do have you know these uh, managers lined up. They've got strong opinions in place already. Whether those opinions will be out the window just because Rannick's are different, I don't know. I suspect they'll you know they'll be holding on to their convictions at least a little bit. Yeah, I think um, I think it's very interesting. The idea that, you know, he's been announced as an interim manager um, and it's been quite clear in, in their appointment. He's here for six months or whatever, and then a two-year consultancy role. They've announced that. And so I think it would be surprising if, you know, he sort of had the managerial interim gig and then didn't go into that consultancy role straight away. But also at the same time, it's kind of like it's up to him, like, I don't want to say that, you know, he he has the reins, but, you know, if he does quite well, you'd sort of think that, you know, he, I know Raniak's very much about having, you know, being in control of the situations he finds himself in. Like, you know, in this, in this particular instance, he didn't have a, an agent representing him in negotiations. He was re- representing himself in terms of doing the contracts and the neg- negotiations. And so in a way, like, I want to say if he wants to, put himself forward as the manager, then maybe, you know, he'll be one of the candidates. But I, I think that he, it also depends on, you know, whether he thinks he's more suited to a sort of consultancy role, which he probably is. Um, if you, do you have anything else to add on Ranić? Just before we get on to, um, we're going to talk just about the way in which, yeah, the Man United players have been playing and then that will feed in nicely to a, to a little preview of uh, this evening's game of Arsenal-Manchester United. Yeah, I guess just relating to the players as well as the one thing I would say about Randy because I'm very excited to see quite literally how we line up and how we play under him. <clears throat> that sounds like a very sort of rudimentary thing to say, but 
the sort of the you know the tangibles what where does you know where does bruno play i've seen suggestions he might even play as a sort of false nine and a front two which is basically similar to the kind of thing he does now mm. but nominally would be a striker van der Beek suddenly becomes a really important player does fred suddenly realize the potential that we've seen him sort of exhibit for brazil on occasion and not for not for us in that holding role i think there's lots of really interesting dynamics to this appointment and really sort of exciting to see how some players survive under him yeah i mean let's let's think about that for a second because you do have players in that squad who i mean in my mind not knowing you know it's interesting because ranik i know loads about him but i also don't know much about him because he's <laughs> he's got this like elevated status as this, like, fa- as you said, this founding father of a certain type of successful footballing style. And, you know, everyone sort of reveres uh, his, his uh, influence on the game and the way in which he, you know, um, sort of evolved things in Germany and how that's infiltrated into, you know, the Premier League big time. But, you know, in my mind, you think of the likes of Van der Beek, you think of J- Jaden Sancho, you think of, even like Mason Greenwood, Marcus Rashford, these are the players you want to be playing under a, you want these players to be coached like big time. They're young players. And, you know, th- I don't think they've been getting that recently. You've sort of been relying on their individual talent. You know, Greenwood's a great goal scorer. Rashford can, you know, he can run, he can score goals, but like you want these players to be properly coached in a way that, you know, they would be at Liverpool or Manchester City. And I, there's always been this notion in my head. It's like, well, you know, Rashford and Greenwood and, you know, these players, these sorts of players, they, they're great at Manchester United, but like, how good would they be if they were being coached by like a Klopp or like a, a Pep Guardiola? And you think, well, if Ranjit can sort of coach these guys, these young players, um, and then he's still got these, you know, he's got Van der Beek. I think Fred is someone who could thrive under him just in terms of his energy and pressing. And I think Bruno Fernandes will get involved. Um you know, you've got the players there, the sort of young players and the athletic players to sort of thrive. I think it will be interesting to see, obviously, the big one, and we'll get on to him a bit more, is how Cristiano Ronaldo fares. And and maybe it's kind of ridiculous that everyone's been making such a fuss about, oh, can Ronaldo press? And like, how is he going to fit into this team? Because, you know, he's Cristiano Ronaldo. But there is a debate to be had as to whether, you know, he's going to, he's going to, how's he going to fit into this new style of play? Because, you know, he's been so important for United this season, but at the same time, people have argued that he sort of limits the team and its pressing capabilities and all of this sort of stuff. But I'm going to ask you a bit more about that because I think that's an interesting debate. But how are the players... I mean, there's been some really underwhelming performances so far this season, and I think, obviously, just because of the way in which you've been playing. But, you know, you've got Harry Maguire, who I think he's been very consistent over his United career mainly and then this season I'm not sure but it appears to me that it's sort of just fallen off a cliff a bit and maybe that will be a bit harsh but you know he's not looked the player the sort of solid player that he has done in the past Luke Shaw had a really good season last season big time struggled defensively Paul Pogba he started the season really well and I think that's a Pogba issue within its own right but you know he's been injured and stuff Varane's come in got injured you know, you list these players, Sancho, Martial, Greenwood, Rashford, Bruno Fernandes, Wan-Bissaka's struggling this season. Like, there is such an upside because these are all really good players if they're coached properly, because I think they just haven't been coached. I mean, David De Gea has arguably been your player of the season, maybe alongside Ronaldo, just in terms of 
um, the saves he's made and, and that sort of thing. So just talk to me about how you see these players at the moment and, and the upside of, uh, of being coached, hopefully, well by Ranjik. Firstly, I'd like to say, in, re- in response to your last point, it's, it's classic, isn't it? De Gea and Ronaldo being sort of player of the season contenders at this point, even though they are both in their own ways so responsible for slightly dysfunctional elements of the team. Mm. Their, 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 their traits and their sort of uh, styles of, of playing and their certain things they can't do really are responsible for holding this team back. But their ability to pull themselves and the team out of those messes and to produce moments of brilliance that are great on the television screen and that do change games to be absolutely fair to De Gea is a world-class shot stopper most of the time Ronaldo a world-class goal scorer if nothing else and um, so yeah I mean they've both both sort of put in some really quite sort of really quite epic performances despite uh, despite not being long-term solutions which they really aren't um, <laughs> <laughs> as for Maguire and Shaw I mean it's funny how quickly things change isn't it six months ago all the talk was about Shawberto Carlos and <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he was suddenly some world-class left back best in the Premier League possibly the best in the world you know definitely the best in England there was no sort of question of Chilwell getting into the England team over. I mean there was sort of minor suggestions but I don't think anyone was particularly dissatisfied that he was our nailed on starter in the Euros him and Maguire both possibly our two most important players in that tournament I mean they were absolutely fundamental so everything we did, they, they were just so good for both club and country last season. And I mean, this season, obviously one can blame Ole's sort of coaching and uh, the sort of structure of the team that exposes them, much like it does to someone like Fred, who's made to look a lot worse than he is by the sort of structure of the team. You can say that all you like. The fact is they have both been pretty dire, you know, capped off by Maguire being sent off, was it, in Ole's last game, which was sort of just kind of just the cherry on the cake really sort of summed it all up. Um, Very nice. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's odd with those two. I, I, I sort of don't know what I think of them at the moment. I obviously still back them as, as potentially much better players and better systems, but you'd like to see them sort of... Someone like Maguire, you'd, like, you'd hope that he would survive a bad structure better because he's the type of player you see as a captain. You see him as a sort of part of the spine of the team. You'd hope he would his form would sort of remain throughout throughout sort of worse periods, but he's just looking so unbelievably patchy at the moment. Yes, a bit of coaching will be will be good for them. Let's let's hope Ranyak can can turn some of these careers around. I mean, you've got a generational front three in Sancho, Greenwood, and Rashford. Time. I mean, let alone sort of your Brunos, your Van der Beeks, whoever else you might have in there. Martial. Anyone remember him? Still plays for the club. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not much longer. Tone. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, these players have, have the sky is the limit for if you Honestly. get the right coaches. And so, I mean, we should be expecting big things. Yeah. I mean, as I think of it now, like Greenwood, Rashford, Sancho. I mean, that is, it's ridiculous how young That's they are, it. how they're all English. <laughs> it's astounding the talent and the ceiling of those guys. Um, Jude Bellingham back to OT and then and you're good. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you've got a really promising Van der Beek and you've got Bruno Fernandes. And though, but those front three really are, as you say, generational. And I think it's 
it's time to start seeing those guys really develop because you, you could argue that Rashford's development, I mean, I know he's a great player, but has he really made loads of strides? Uh, can you see the sort of progress over the last few years in terms of, you know, this is a key part of his development. How old is he now? Like 23, 24? I know he's still young, but well, I think, you know, he broke into the scene, what, he was 18? And he's not, come on, leaps and back. Like, I know he's obviously developed a, a goal scoring sort of consistency perhaps, but there's so much more from him, I think, that we 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 could expect and be excited for. And I think, you know, Greenwood as well. I mean, what an innately talented goal scorer. Sancho, we've seen his his talents at Dortmund. So I think super exciting to see those guys. But that leads us on just to the sort of Cristiano Ronaldo debate. Um, he's obviously been so important for you this season in terms of salvaging sort of your your Champions League qualification, getting points to the board in the Premier League. But I think the key word there is salvaging. Like you don't want to be in a position where someone is salvaging your results and in a way, we've sort of seen it with maybe Bruno Fernandes over the last year or so. I mean, not to the same drastic extent, but you don't want to be a one-man team who sort of relies on this guy. But at the same time, I mean, he's Cristiano Ronaldo. He's going to score you loads of goals. Like, why are you even questioning it? But a lot of people have said that he compromises your style of play. Um, you can't press now. I mean, I find that... I don't know what you make of that. You, you watch United more than me. But in my head, I'm kind of like, I can see where people are coming from. But at the same time, did Manchester United have a sort of defined style of play in the first place that is there to be compromised? Yes, possibly not. But I mean, I think what's really important for players like Ronaldo is a bit of discipline, a bit of tactical structure, like we say, because him and Bruno have some similar tendencies and that's this sort of hero ball desire to do it all yourself. They're so ambitious. They're so driven. They're so unbelievably confident in their own abilities. I mean, Bruno will drop into whatever space he fancies to get the ball. If he's not seeing it progress quick enough, he will he will come between centre-backs. He'll drop into full-back positions to get that ball and do something with it. And Ronaldo's the same. Ronaldo really just needs to stay within the posts of the goal, within the penalty box. He needs to get those goals that we know he's capable of getting. I mean, the way he sort of drifts wide and drops deep to get the ball, we find ourselves left without any kind of focal point in the in the sort of final third, it can be really frustrating at times. And like I say, well, it needs a bit of discipline. And a coach told him, no, this isn't what you what you do best, and this is really detrimental to the team. And the same is true of off the ball. Uh, there's all this stuff about Ronaldo's pressing. Obviously, the statistics bear out that he is just one of the worst at it in Europe. I sort of don't buy. I don't really subscribe to the idea that like a player can't press. Mm. Ronaldo's notoriously one of the fittest most hardworking footballers we've ever seen. He's the, takes care of his body like no one ever has and is so determined. Like I say, he's not someone who's lazy. He's not going to, not like, you know, we watch, uh, watch PSG play Man City and that second goal was absolutely criminal if you watch the replay, the way the front three are walking around the pitch, yards from the ball. I mean, players like Neymar and Messi really do take the mick. I truly believe that Ronaldo could be made to press effectively. Maybe, mm. maybe not overly effectively maybe he'd never be really good at it but I, I believe you can fit him into a pressing system and and get away with it you know I don't think he has to be this uh, this kind of Hamasha is that the word I'm looking for mm. kind of fatal flaw in the team I don't think he really needs to be that I think yeah. I truly believe a player as hard working and talented as him can be can be configured to, to sort of work and and that's on 
you know the the coaching staff and i mean i think this is where you sort of see the uh the uh the conflict because um if you sign a player like ronaldo you make it work like big time you, you're not signing ronaldo i mean and this is this is another part of discussion which we'll get on to um but you know he he went to juventus after um being at real madrid and i sort of questioned you know, obviously Juventus are going to try and sign Ronaldo, but they were winning Serie A like every year. And they actually probably got a bit worse once Ronaldo joined. Just in t- And I'm sure it wasn't the only reason, but you don't sign Ronaldo to win the Serie A like by a bigger margin or like win the Italian Cup. They signed Ronaldo to win the Champions League and maybe that's unfair. But like, how do you, how do you measure sort of Ronaldo's influence in terms of success? Because... You'd think at the beginning of the season, rightly or wrongly, you finished second last year. You sign Cristiano Ronaldo and then Sancho and Varane. You don't sign those players to sort of regress or change. the Like you're signing those as like the final pieces in a way to then challenge for the title. And now that that's not necessarily going to happen this season, what is Ronaldo's like, I don't know, like, it's it's hard because he's such a good player and he's still one of the best in the world. But where is his impact most keenly felt? Like, what difference does he make? Is it worth having him around? All these sorts of questions. And it's kind of ridiculous to say it, I know. And, and a lot of Ronaldo fans will probably be like, why do you question him? Because he's Ronaldo. But you're not signing Ronaldo. And there was this big debate between Jamie Carragher and Roy Keane the other day. Jamie Carragher was saying, you're not signing Ronaldo to you know, win an FA Cup or challenge for the top four. You're signing Ronaldo to challenge for the title and the highest honours, but are United, are they there? Should they be there? Um, I just find it confusing. And I think this is where the there is a debate to be had in terms of whether Ronaldo's signing was a good one. Was it a, an emotional one? Was it because Manchester City were about to sign him? Um, what do you make of this sort of, this discussion because it is really interesting. It would be interesting to get a United fans perspective on it because, you know, where you are now, it's hard to measure what constitutes uh, success in terms of signing Ronaldo, you know? Yeah. I mean, I go back to, I'm not in the sort of, I told you so way, but I remember when people asked me about Ronaldo, when we signed him initially, it was such an exciting little period. Um, the news was blowing up with sort of transfer stories of him to City, which seemed inconceivable. And then the day after that, him to United, which seemed inevitable. And mm. then it happened. And people asked me, you know, aren't you excited for Ronaldo back to Old Trafford? And I said, well, parts of me are excited. In an emotional Part- sense, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. But parts of me really aren't that excited. And I think it was obvious then, to, in some ways, that 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 wasn't, as you say, the final piece of the puzzle that it should have maybe been. It wasn't as simple as that. I think in a lot of ways it it probably was a commercial signing. I wouldn't be surprised if Ole and some of the coaching staff basically had no say in whether he was signed or not. I, pres- mm. I wouldn't be surprised if the Glazers saw the transfer news and thought, we're bringing him back. I don't care. You know, <laughs> we're going to get him back. I think they made back, obviously, wages are another thing, but I think they made back the transfer fee in shirt sales straight, like, within a couple of weeks or something. You know, yeah. I think financially, it just sort of as a as a commercial... Probably signing, the most, it was 
probably the most decisive that the Glazers have ever been, no? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> the most conviction they've ever had in the footballing sense. Yeah, I think as a commercial signing, it's probably already been a success. And it was just, it was that. Um, it does seem odd to have a player like Ronaldo around when you're not winning anything. He doesn't really help you prepare for the future, other than maybe, you know, having some good impact in the dressing room on younger signings, showing them what a winning mentality looks like, as well as a winning ability. Um you know, I think he could be useful for a multitude of reasons, but it does seem a little bit, I agree, it seems a little bit sort of backwards having him whilst you're building with younger players and then he'll probably leave in a couple of years when we sort of start, hopefully when we start uh, kicking on and winning things properly. It is what it is. It's a bit sad that it doesn't really feel like that romantic swan song that, I mean, I've, even a few years ago, I remember sort of suggesting the notion of Ronaldo coming back to United for the last few years of his career and being sort of laughed at and uh, it, it, mm. it seeming such a ridiculous suggestion. And now it's here. It doesn't really feel all that, all that beautiful. It's not this sort of, you know, whenever he scores for us, I don't feel this great sense of, oh, you know, he's back doing doing it again his, in his you know latter years. I just sort of feel like he's probably quite frustrated at continually having to score tap-ins to save us from draws at mid-table Premier League sides mm. and you know it, it doesn't really feel that magical when he scores at the moment it just kind of feels quite depressing because mm. you know that he's not he's not winning when he scores like he wants to be and that but yeah and I think in a way his signing shows so much about Manchester United doesn't it I mean we've talked about the commercial side of things and the Glazers and that was probably completely up to them. And I think it was definitely Ed Woodward was sort of very much involved in this signing. And you don't, I don't think Solskjaer really had a say in it. And I think it's, you know, we can't forget that you signed Edison Cavani last year and he was only going to stay around for a year. And then he signed another contract and uh, extended his stay. And it's like, it was not in the plan to sign Cristiano Ronaldo. There's always been a notion, as you say, of maybe him returning one day. And I guess that leads into the question of if you can sign Cristiano Ronaldo, do you? And I mean, the simple answer is, yeah, like obviously you do. But at the same time, if you're a well-run club, um, maybe you consider it a bit more. You think, well, we've got Edinson Cavani for a reason. You know, we, we were looking at trying to sign Eric ha- um, Haaland. What? Eric Haaland? It's <laughs> <laughs> not his name. Um, you're looking to sign Haaland. <laughs> That G2, buddy. Looking to sign Haaland or, you know, a different sort of profile of striker. And then, you know, Cavani has a strong season last time. He shows he can contribute. He's influencing Greenwood and Rashford in all the right ways. And sort of in a way, that's, you know, that job that Ronaldo has sort of, we just talked about, that was already being done in a way by Edinson Cavani. And now you've got both of them. Um, I've lost my train of say, thought. You say, do you sign Ronaldo? Yes. You say that, but do it again. I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure of the ins and outs of why these deals didn't happen. But Ronaldo was made available by himself and Juventus. It wasn't like United were the first in for him. Mm. It was clear to every club in Europe that Ronaldo was for sale, and at the price United got him, about 20 million, clearly wasn't that expensive either. And there are plenty of world class clubs who were not really that interested in him. So for, do you yeah. just sign Ronaldo? I don't know why the City deal didn't go through in the end. But there's a part of me that genuinely believes that Pep thought, you know what, we can do a lot better than signing Ronaldo right now. Mm, I think in terms of quality, but in terms of fit, in terms of, you know, uh, profile, 
in terms of everything. It's not always as simple as, you know, I, and you'll get your Roy Keens and these, these oh, God, Sky Sports pundits. And you get Gary Neville's last year. I, mean, I just remember these people saying, you know, you're Manchester United, just go and get Harry Kane and you'll win the league. Oh, just shut up. It's just... Well, so this is good. part of the reason, could isn't it? could not be less simple. Yeah, and this is part of the reason of moving away from that idea that you're Manchester United. Like, that's been lost big time over the last few years, I think. And it will come back once the club has been managed in a way. But you need to move away from that that sort of preconceived notion that, oh, well, United are United and they can sign this and that and it will just all Vital be fine. success, yeah. It's, it's not how it works anymore. Like, we've shown that, you know, Liverpool and Chelsea and uh, Man City, they've, they've been, they're well-run clubs. They've backed it up with world-class managers and brilliant recruitment and plenty of money being spent. But that's how you run a, you know, a highly successful football club these days. It's not just on the notions of the past. We forget. I mean, I mean, it's it's telling, isn't it, that City and Chelsea historically aren't these sorts of big clubs, and yet they're the most successful at the moment. And in a way, that probably helps their success. They don't have these these past sort of notions of oh, well, it's Manchester United. Oh, you know, the glory days of Arsene Wenger. Like this is where we should be. Well, it's like. No, this is where we are because we are a well-run club. We've invested the money smartly. Our ownership model is, you know, it's all about money, but at the same time, we put good people in place who run the club properly. And I think it's interesting to see that. I mean, I know Liverpool was sort of, you know, they went through all these years of probably struggling to rediscover the Liverpoolness of the past, but they finally worked through it through smart management and recruitment and Jurgen Klopp. Um, we were talking about Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, I mean, let's just tie up this conversation. Um, I mean, if you are in a position now where it's the summer again, hypothetically, would you do it again? And your answer is probably no, right? Possibly. I possibly. would do it again. You would possibly do it again. I, yeah. I, 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 I probably might, you know, because the truth is with our strike options with Cavani out injured every other day, you don't want Greenwood being forced. To, I would like to see him bled in there. It's very tough to say. And it depends if the management is sort of, are you saying we're going into the season with Solskjaer again or with someone yeah. else? Because, I mean, it's just difficult to say. Yeah, I yeah. don't think I don't think he necessarily detracts so much from the club, Ronaldo, as mm. much as he doesn't necessarily move the needle that far for us and hasn't sort of, doesn't help our long-term vision or move the club forward at all. I don't think signing him has necessarily been a sort of, a detriment to the club or the results. Yeah. I think I think it's hard to argue there's been a detriment to results when you know he has oh, so many goals. As much as you say he might take away from the team in defence or that kind of thing. So yeah, I might well sign him again. But it's yeah, uh, and I think also a big part of it is like you sign Ronaldo really with his age and with all these things. You sign him to a completed team, you know, and, and United at the moment are not a team who are finished and then you add Ronaldo on the cherry on the cake. And that's why maybe Manchester City were interested. I don't know how far that interest went, but like they're a great team. You add Ronaldo in their goals. Um, maybe that's going to be really successful and, and stuff, but you know, United aren't the finished article as a team. And I think maybe Ronaldo signing sort of exposes that a bit more uh, that yes, United were up there sort of second and third and it looks as if they had a great team out there and they do. But at the same time, I think this season shows more than ever that there is a lot of coaching to be done for these players. But look, 
let's move on because we've been uh, we've been nattering on and I've, I've very much enjoyed our conversation but there's a game this evening and we need to talk about that um, we'll just switch it over to Arsenal briefly um, before we preview the game itself um, I had a look through the show notes as I said from last year um, and it's crazy to think that last time we visited Old Trafford obviously Arsenal won one nil. Um, it was our first win at Old Trafford for 14 years. It was our first away win against the traditional big six in 29 attempts. Um, we followed that up with a win at Chelsea last season. Um, and, you know, Thomas Partey had an excellent game. Aubameyang scored a penalty. Um, you know, it was, it was a great win, but it also turned out to be a bit of a false dawn because after that, Arsenal had one of the most horrendous stretches of recent history. Um, it was really, really bad um, under Arteta post uh, before Christmas, sorry. And, you know, there were question marks after that game about Solskjaer and then you went on a brilliant run and, you know, sort of towards the top of the tie, top of the league. And then when United visited Arsenal, uh, I think it was in maybe February or March, you know, you were not far off Manchester City at all. And I remember us having conversations quite frequently about, well, like maybe United have, can challenge City properly and uh, it didn't happen in the end but it's really interesting to notice you know when we talked about the Arsenal United game last season I mean I look at the team that started at Old Trafford Burnt Leno was in goal we had a back three of Rob Holding Kieran Tierney and uh, Gabriel Bellerin uh, was at right wing back Saka was starting left wing back we had Partey and El Elneny as the midfield duo and then we had Willian Lacazette and Aubameyang Mustafi came on uh, later on in the game, as did Eddie and Ketia. I mean, it's been a crazy turnaround from an Arsenal point of view. I mean, over the last five years, but just between last season and this season. What are your thoughts on Arsenal? Um, I don't know how much you've watched of them. Um, obviously, we probably spoke to each other last about Arsenal at the beginning of the season where, you know, we had a horrendous start, losing 5-0 to City and losing to Chelsea and Brentford. But some of the players that were starting those games were some of the guys that I mentioned there. You know, our back five we started against City was uh, Cedric Suarez, Sayed Kalasinac, Callum Chambers, Rob Holding, and maybe Pablo Marie or something like that. It's like, and Burnt Leno and I, I think Tierney started that game, but yes, maybe it was, Tierney, close, but, it was yeah. close to being one of the most dire back lines I could have imagined. And that's not just from an Arsenal point of view. That is like relegation standard in the Premier oh. League. <laughs> and it's like, well, no wonder we had a really tough start to the season with COVID issues, keeping all sorts of players out for the Brentford game. And, you know, we throw yeah, it. You had a tough few, first few games as well. Um, God, I, I didn't realise how long Arsenal had been suffering. 29 games, you see, without winning the big six or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that was away from home. Um, but... Wait, sorry, yes. Um, still, you know, that's a... That's yeah, a big, that's, that's a, it's quite a stat. But uh, yeah, what have you made of Arsenal so far? No, no, I mean, I haven't watched much of Arsenal this year because they're an incredibly boring side to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think sticking with Arteta is starting to look like it's paying off a bit. Like you say, there have been some incredibly sort of uh, worrying periods under him, uh, which I really thought I might be making profit, but it wasn't <laughs> to be. I think... I just I want to say, Arsenal, I think a lot of the transfer window you had this summer was so slated at the time. To be fair, it was probably only really, you know, the idiots on Twitter that I was seeing slating. There were no genuine journalists saying. Well, I mean, Gary Neville 
did sort of a lot of credible journalists were criticizing the moves uh to be fair um that's just and, silly i mean yeah it, it it seems clear to me that the lower that you had a real a transfer philosophy in place at least this summer with the Finally. types of players that you, you were signing say again Finally, I said. Yeah. yeah, um, you know, it's it seemed like they were pretty well thought through. Not necessarily instant successes. Not necessarily bring them in. I didn't necessarily think Ramsdale would oust Leno straight away, which he has, um, and sort of a number of other players have sort of come straight into the team. But I like Lokonga. I didn't think would play as much as as he has. You know, they're, they're all looking really quite good, and I think the you know. Result at Anfield shows that, you know, obviously the age profile of this team and the the way it has been thrown together quite, you know, I think a lot of your first starting 11 now has been signed within the last two years. It's only really sort of our Bamiyang and uh, Tierney and Xhaka when he's fit that are mm. still sort of older players. Obviously, you're going to get results like that. You know, things still aren't going to be, maybe, maybe Arteta will never turn it around to being sort of title contenders, but... At least the sort of the team you've got at the moment looks like it has a real personality. It looks like it's got a lot of desire. I love Aaron Ramsdale. He's, mm. he's, like, got, he's like got such a good attitude towards the game. Really sort of thrives right. under <laughs> under pressure and uh, and under the cosh. It seems like a really good thing. Um, I do think people are getting a bit getting a bit gassy over his saves. Though. They're really he keeps tipping them onto the bar, and it makes it look way more exciting. But it's just a worse save. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 unfortunately for myself, really like the way Arsenal are looking at the moment. I'd be very excited as an Arsenal fan, if nothing else, but for the long term, because you've got mm. a lot of players who will be hopefully around for about 10 years or so and who look like they've got a lot, lot of potential. I mean, Saka and Smith-Rowe aren't even signings, of course. These are really kind of, you know, top young players you'd be looking to build your team around. And as soon as you can get uh, what, a striker, maybe another CDM in, I do laugh at how you've signed sort of three centre mids in the past sort of couple of years and your next priority signing is a centre mid. Yeah. <laughs> it shows that it's been such a big it issue. It feels like party Lakonga, I mean, Odegaard's not a centre mid, but yeah. you sort of three central players there and you still need a Xhaka replacement. Um, yeah. But that's just how it is. Sometimes. I mean, it's the same with United. In some ways, we haven't really signed a centre mid, but like you, we could sign two or three and we'd still need a fourth. I think it's just such a big, big big uh important position on the pitch that you know there's always scope to improve and i think yeah look i am excited as an arsenal fan um these the 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 transfer strategy in the summer was so refreshing after you know years of you know uh muddled recruitment and everyone you know so many different people signing players and then it not quite coming off and you know signing willian and you know signing at Bamiyang six months after signing Lacazette for 50 million a piece. And it was just such a waste of resources in a way. And now it's like, finally, we've got to a point where we can accept where we are. You know, we're not quite there yet. We need to start having a long-term vision, aligning it with the coach that we've got, the executive structure that we've got. Everyone's young, everyone's inexperienced, but we're going to grow together. And, you know, we've got the youngest team in the league on average, and you look at our starting strongest starting 11 these days. I mean, most of them are around 22, 23 years old. You've got a few experienced heads in there. And it's really promising. There are going to be moments, as you said, at Anfield where 
you know, for the first half, I don't know if you watched it, but I was really encouraged as an Arsenal fan. We we went to Anfield, we played, and we got absolutely blown away in the second half through a few mistakes and the Anfield atmosphere and just the sheer quality of Liverpool's play getting the most of us. No shame in that. It happens to the best of teams. Arsenal are a young team. We're not the best of teams. But, yeah, as you say, we, we weren't maybe expecting these young players to sort of come in straight away and make an impact. But Arsenal are fifth in the table. And when you consider the uh, the sort of start of the season that we had, it's quite crazy to think that a win at Old Trafford this evening leaves us in the top four. And that's being done with a team who are 22, 23 years old, who have just started playing together. This is a project that hopefully spans, you know, over the next five, 10 years. We've got generational talents in there. And, you know, Arsenal fans are accused of being deluded and sort of getting carried away. And as I, as I sit here sort of saying, we've got generational talents and it's looking so promising, you could be, could be accused of being a bit sort of overly optimistic, but it is a fact. What are you supposed to be as a fan? Well, exactly. And like, but there's reason to be optimistic. And I think that's what you want as a fan to not be, you want your expectations and hope to align with the players and what you've got going on in the pitch. And when you've got these young players, it's, there's more margin, there's more room for, you know, understanding disappointment. I think last year, if we go to Liverpool, we get battered 5-0 and we've got the likes of Willian and, you know, David Louise playing. It's like, well, yeah, there's a reason to be really annoyed that these are the players representing your club. But now you've got these young players, you've got Ben White, who, yes, we spent a lot of money on, but I think he's going to be a great signing for the next five, 10 years. Ramsdale and Gabriel and Tommy Yasu and all these players will be learning, playing together, if they lose heavily against Manchester United, Manchester, not Manchester United, Manchester City or Liverpool, that's fine because we're not there yet. You know, you look back to Liverpool five years ago when this team, you know, started to come together. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, they were probably at a higher level than we're at, but, you know, it takes time to, to develop these players and they've not even been playing together for more than like 15 games and already there are promising signs. I mean, there are still things to improve like we don't create enough chances we we struggle for goals sometimes and all of this sort of stuff prone to mistakes at the back because of the young players but at least the young players are making the mistakes and not bloody Mustafi and David Louise and Jacka I mean we're so hopefully past that now so yes it's exciting as Arsenal fans but yeah you want to add something there I mean, it's just testament to how different the sort of states of our the clubs are that actually we have Admittedly, ours was at home and yours was at Anfield, but identical results at Liverpool, 5 0 for both of them. For us, it feels absolutely damning that we've been trying for a few years now to get up to that state and we still can't give them a game at home. For you, it feels like the most minor of setbacks, the sort of drop, a drop in the ocean of the kind of results you're going to be getting soon because mm. your team is looking forward and our team feels like it just comes to the end of a sort of a three-year title challenge that never materialised. Obviously, the age profile still means that we do have plenty of future ahead of us, but the the mood around the clubs are very different despite identical results at Liverpool. Um, yeah, and I think that's a testament to... I think a lot of Arsenal's will be looking at performance, not result there. They'll be saying, they couldn't care less about the goals. I'm looking at how our players played. Admittedly, it wasn't great at times. You know, Tavares crumbled, but... Uh, so did the Conga, but then they they were they were maintained they retained their places uh, for the uh, for the Newcastle game. 
both of them played really well. And it's like, if you're setting that precedent of young players can make mistakes, but it's how you respond to them. And that's what Artest has been saying big time. It's part of the reason we signed Ramsdale, who, you know, went through all sorts of being relegated for Bournemouth and Sheffield United. But it's how you respond to making mistakes. If Ramsdale's going to play out from the back and, you know, sometimes it'll go really well, sometimes it'll go really badly. That's fine. As long as you learn from it and your, your attitude towards making those mistakes is sort of as a learning curve. And I think people started to, you know, before the Liverpool game, they were like, oh, this is a big, big reflection of, this is a chance for Arsenal to assert themselves. And it looked maybe for the first half, like we might do that, but then we fell short. And it's like, there's no shame in that, uh, sort of going to Anfield and trying to play and then losing quite heavily. And I'm look, we shouldn't have conceded four goals. It's not good enough, really, when you see some teams can go to Anfield and play quite well and get results. But yeah, I think this game to this evening is, I mean, Arsenal United for me is always such a big game just because of, you know, the uh, the historical um, significance. I mean, I grew up, my first memories of being an Arsenal fan of back in 2003, 2004, when, you know, Arsenal Invincibles, I remember the back end of that and Arsenal and United were sort of just, you know, that was the the height of the, the rivalry between Arsenal and United, where both of them were sort of vying for, you know, the, uh, the position as England and perhaps Europe's best team. And, you know, that coincides quite nicely with the fact that I watched the Arsene Wenger Invincible documentary recently and, you know, Ferguson was on there and was saying some really uh, sort of... Uh, bold words about the Arsene Wenger sort of teams of the early 2000s saying they were, you know, they were really good. They were challenging us and we weren't able to go a season unbeaten. Like, you know, so there's been a, there's been a, a sort of relevance to this fixture. And obviously, you know, you being a Manchester United fan and uh, Finley as well, being a Manchester United fan, like this rivalry is a big one for me. And um, I get, I don't get nervous in the same way uh for a united game than i do for other games like i know there's a north london derby but this this fixture always has a special significance for me because i think i know that we're capable of winning it a lot of the time and a lot of the time we don't or haven't done in the past under sort of the late wenger years um but arsenal fell short against liverpool and there's no shame in that but we did well against Leicester. We did well against Spurs. And I think those are the games that we want to see more progress in than perhaps at this point in time against uh, City and Chelsea and uh, Liverpool. United is sort of the next best thing in terms of, I mean, again, on paper, maybe it's not been uh, on the pitch. Sorry, it's not been as good as it has been or as good as it should be. But on paper, you know, going to Old Trafford, it doesn't get much bigger than that for these Arsenal players. And we should... I'm expecting us to go there and put in a good performance. And I know performance matters more than result, but I will be very frustrated if we don't, if we lose this game. I mean, a win would be sensational. And I think that would almost be maybe too good to be true, just in terms of the fact that it would take us into the top four. But at the same time, we should be capable of trying to win the game. But a draw would be fine as long as we play well. And then we've got Everton on Monday evening, again away. So look, I think this is huge for Arsenal. Um, it's a chance to make a lay down a really solid marker in the sand. Um, a young team that could go to Old Trafford and sort of come away with a positive result would be huge for this group of players. 
I don't know how you sort of see it going down from a Man United perspective. Yeah, it's interesting to hear your thoughts on the, the rivalry. I mean, what surprised me about the stats you were giving me earlier as well about Arsenal's record against the big six and that kind of thing is that I've always felt quite vulnerable against Arsenal in the past. Maybe it hasn't been as long then, as long as it feels, but certainly the past sort of couple of years, I've never really felt that confident getting a result of Arsenal. They seem to be a bit of a bogey team. Well, I mean, just before you keep going, Arsenal are unbeaten in their last three against Manchester United. We haven't gone four on. We haven't gone four unbeaten for I think ever in the history of the fixture. Arteta has not yet conceded a goal when he's he's played three fixtures against United. He got his first win, I think, against as of, of his uh, managerial tenure against United at the Emirates. He got Arsenal's first win at Old Trafford last season for God knows how long. I think I said like fourteen years. And then it was a nil-nil draw at, um, at the Emirates last year. So, yeah, you you have struggled against Arsenal recently. Yeah, I, I think possibly it is an Arteta thing that it was quite a sort of a good matchup for for you, that Arteta's sort of, uh, you know, stranglehold over Arsenal's squad, forcing that really sort of boring style of play. Mm. Really, really matched up well against Ole's kind of tricky reds, mm. the sort of individual quality in our passion and no zero tactical structure whereas your kind of really methodical way of playing was quite a sort of quite a good matchup and really made it hard for us certainly it has in recent games yeah i i'm it's one of those fixtures where maybe in the opposite ways you i'm never really that confident about getting a, a result arsenal despite sort of feeling like we really should because as you say the sort of players on the pitch much as i like your recruitment we've got a far better 11 than you do we really mm. should be able to beat you but it never feels that simple with Arsenal. Um, yeah, I mean, it shows the difference between the team and the quality of a team. And don't get me wrong, you know, we've got quality who have perhaps been underperforming of late. Like pierre and Aubameyang hasn't been scoring enough, but we don't create enough chances maybe. But, you know, he's missed a few sisters recently. Thomas Partey has not been brilliant recently and we need a big game from him tonight. Martin Erdegaard has been out the team. You'd like to think that he's sort of, you know, we spent £35 million on him. I don't necessarily expect him to start tonight because I think Lacazette will come back in in a game like this. Um, Kieran Tierney's not been in the side. You know, a lot of these senior players who are good players haven't been making the impact. It's been the young guys who have been impressive. Um, but yeah, like you say, United very much could start with, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo on the pitch and Rashford and Sancho. And, you know, they should expect with the quality on the pitch to sort of, you know, beat Arsenal quite easily just because of the quality. But... I think testament to sort of the way in which United have been playing and the team dynamic and that opposed to Arsenal's, it will be an interesting matchup, but it could, as always, as any game of football could go either way. But I think hopefully... That's why we love it. Yeah, that's why we love it and also why we care so much. And I think I'd be I'd be quite devastated if, if Arsenal lost this game um, just because I think we're so capable and it would be... Great opportunity. Yeah. It's an opportunity, but also it would be maybe a, a harsh reminder of sort of, ah, well, maybe we're not quite there yet. And maybe Arteta's not quite the guy. And I so want to believe that we are nearly there. And like, <laughs> is the guy. And that's just the fan sentiment in me. But also, you know, what I've seen. One of, what I've seen. Yeah, exactly. And, um, but look, I am going to predict a, I'm going to predict a 1-0 Arsenal win. Um, but, that's the fan side of me coming out. A more sort of unbiased perspective might say a one or draw or even a 2-1 United win. But 
I don't know where you're coming at it from, from a United fan, having watched the way in which you've played recently. It's very difficult to predict. I mean, what I would predict is a particularly cagey and mm. pessimistically perhaps quite a boring affair mm. between, like I say, Arteta's very sort of well-coached, very well-drilled team and Carrick's interim side, who he's probably going to set up quite defensively, even though we are Old Trafford. We are against a good Arsenal team who will probably set up quite quite sort of passively, looking to, you know, well, break things is- up, get things, get things through the talented forwards and get a couple goals that way. I doubt it will be a very high-scoring affair. Mm. I think that's interesting because, you know, Arsenal last season at Old Trafford sat back and hit on the counter and that did the job. But that's probably how Carrick's might set up. I mean, I don't know. Like, I expect Arsenal in these big games tend to... It's still quite novel for me to see Arsenal in these big games go for it and play on the front foot instead of sitting back. But I think that's sort of more of how we've been playing recently. And so... I expect us to maybe, you know, take the game to United, but at the same time, it could be the reverse. But I think Arsenal will probably be the proactive side, maybe. Um, but maybe for parts of the game, will be less proactive and United will dominate because Arsenal aren't a team who can sustain it for a whole game these days. Like, we've got to try, and if we've got a dominant period in the game, we've got to try and score because then our levels do drop off and we are vulnerable and that's where you know, sort of Ramsdale and Ben White and our defence comes in handy because it's looking more solid. But look, I think we've we've had a brilliant conversation today. And just to tie things up, um, let's look ahead to the, to the festive fixture list because there's plenty of football and I think, you know, it's very exciting. Um, United's schedule gets a bit kinder, doesn't it, after this Arsenal game? You've got Manchester... Uh, not Manchester United, you've got Crystal Palace up at home. Um on Saturday, I think it is. I think Ranjik's first game where he'll be on the touchline. Obviously, Patrick Vieira will be back at Old Trafford, which is quite large. And I hope that it goes very well for Crystal Palace. But you've got some good fixtures coming up. Um, I expect things to pick up for United, of course. And I think you're still in a position where you're, you're qualified for Europe. Um, I think that that's confirmed, isn't it? Qualified from the group stages. Oh, yeah, qualified for the knockout rounds of... Uh, that's awfully early to guarantee fourth place, <laughs> given we're eighth. But um, <laughs> I expect performances to pick yeah, up and you go on a bit of a run now under Ranić. Yeah, I think it's it's quite a nice timing, actually, that this is the the end of a particularly tough stretch of fixtures, which in, I sort of remember looking forward to it a few months ago. And it's funny that Oli didn't survive it. We're always sort of looking forward to this patch of City, Liverpool, Chelsea, a couple of games against Atalanta as mm. a really kind of, you know, this was going to be the test. And he very much failed it. Mm. Here we are. On the other side, after this Arsenal game, it is all mid-table clubs or better qualified for Europe. So hopefully Rangnick starts should be relatively smooth sailing. I mean, it's sort of got to be in a way because like if you, you know, if you, again, it's like if and buts, but like, this is quite an important period, the, the Christmas period. You know, the games come thick and fast. You're playing, you've got a good fixture run. And so on paper, you should be doing well. But the way United have been playing recently, you wouldn't say that any of those fixtures are going to be easy. But you need those fixtures to start becoming easier as they should be. And Ranić's got to do a, a job. He's got to start fast, really, because you're, you know, you're, if uh, you're, you're sort of off the pace a bit for the race for the top four, um, I expect things to pick up. But you know, there's there's no margin for error, really. If you if you drop a few points early on against Palace and say, I think you've got Norwich coming up and 
another one of those games you know what happens will are we overestimating the fact that it will just get better straight away for united or do they have enough quality and ranick will make that instant impact you'd hope as a united fan it's, it sounds arbitrary but you'd say he's probably got sort of you know two or three dropped points on not points rather but dropped games draws or losses two or three draws or losses out of that first what you know sort of 10 10 15 even games mm. in all competitions let him get away with you know a couple, but he really can't get away with more than that. Once, once you've drawn a couple or lost one or two, that's you know, you've got to really be winning because uh, we're not. We've not put ourselves in a position where we're in control of our fate at this point. It's you know, we very much need to be getting these results in order to get Europe, let alone sort of look mm. at making a title challenge, which obviously we aren't going to win. But if we want to be sort of within that bracket rather than in the kind of fourth to sixth bracket of people mm. fighting for Europe which is not a fun place to be mm. don't miss those scraps at the end of the season between Arsenal and Leicester and Spurs and United all vibe for one Champions League place God yeah I mean you I mean your season really I think United fans will be expecting to finish in the top four that fourth spot should be yours really and you should be looking to look I don't know how far you can go in the Champions League but try and go on a run in that with Ronaldo's exemplary record and you should be looking to win something domestically with Ronaldo and you know Roy Kim was saying you're a cup team now but you know whether he's right or wrong you need you haven't won a trophy for a while um so I think that's what you should be looking to do um look Arsenal travel to Everton on Monday evening so I'd very much take four points from you know two away games at Everton and uh, United and mm. ironically both those sides are sort of maybe at their most vulnerable at the moment um, I mean Everton had patches against Liverpool where they were pretty pretty decent but you know th- those are teams who are really struggling and need to start winning so maybe you know it's the good time to play them or also it's the not good time to play them because the pressure's on but look is there anything else you want to add before we leave it there today it's been going for a while and we could go on for a lot longer but I think we've that- got for about an hour and a half haven't we um... it's all 90 minutes no, <laughs> Full 90. <laughs> I don't think there's anything anything else I need to say. Uh, hopefully, I've got it all out without mixing up too many of my words. No, of course, you, you've done very well. Um, it's been a very, very high quality uh, conversation, as as it always is. Um, but um, a pleasure to have you on. And uh, I think what we'll do is we'll we'll have you back on for the next Arsenal United game, as as is tradition. Um, and I'm not going to wish you luck for this evening because that's just not, just not happening. Um, I hope that you are disappointed by the end of the game. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. If you lose and I hope it makes you suffer. Yeah, I mean, no, I don't hope it makes you suffer, but I hope that I'm very happy and you're sad and we're okay with that. <laughs> but um, thanks for your time. Um, it's been great to have you back on. And uh, yeah. Thanks for having me on as always, Dean. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Um, so we're going to leave it there now. A quick reminder, you can find every episode of That Sums It All Up and my weekly features on uh, Fresh Air Sports Hub show, which sort of rounds up the uh, sporting events per as and when they, they happen. Uh, you can find that on www.mixcloud.com forward slash Alfie-Steiner. You can also find all my shows that I share via my Twitter page at AlfieSteiner1 or my Instagram at AlfieSteiner. As always, thanks for listening. Enjoy your week. Up the gunners for this evening. Expecting big things and hoping for big things. So hopefully I'm not going to be disappointed. And until next time, take it easy. Goodbye. Back to the
sums it all.